0: Today's episode grapples with the many implications of one big question. What happens to literary archives when most of the work and communications around book publishing now occurs digitally? This is Overdue Conversations, a podcast about the ways archives inform our discussions around history, literature, and politics. From digital publishing to reparative justice, climate change to public health, this series of Overdue Conversations takes archival documents out of the stacks and into the public forum to consider how collecting practices, selective reading, and erasure of past knowledge informs and distorts contemporary debates. I'm Amanda Martin-Harden, a history doctoral student at Columbia and a producer for this podcast. In this episode, Columbia Literature Curator Lena Mo sits down with Lise Jayant, an author, researcher, and lecturer at Lowborough University. Lise Jayant's research lies at the intersection of digital humanities, book history, and modernist studies. Her core expertise is on literary institutions. She has written extensively about the publishers that marketed the new literature of the early 20th century. She also has expertise on born digital archives and the issue of preservation and access to these archives, which Lena and Lise discuss at length in this episode. While this conversation primarily focuses on digital archives in the publishing industry, it also touches on the larger significance of how to preserve archives for future generations to access in an increasingly digital world. Let's listen in.
1: Jayan, thank you so much for joining me today on the podcast. I want to start with your project after the digital revolution. Um, its aim is to bring together all the people who use digital born records. So professors, library professionals. I'm at a big research university, and this seems fairly unusual to me. There's often a pretty bright line separating faculty from archivists and curators and catalogers. So I know that your project has lots of aims related to the archival materials, the digital born materials, and we'll turn to that focus soon. But just staying with the participants for a minute, I wonder how did this collaboration come about and is it as unusual in universities in the UK and Canada as it is in the U.S.?
2: Yeah, well, thank you so much for, for the invitation first. And I think that's an interesting question about collaboration. So let me uh, tell you a little bit about me. I mean, I did my PhD in North America in uh, in Vancouver, and then I went back uh, to the UK. And for a time, I worked at the John Rylands Research Institute in Manchester. And the John Rylands Research Institute is actually part of, uh, of the library, the John Rylands Library. So it's a big research uh, library. And at that time, I started becoming increasingly interested in uh, digital archives. So I worked a lot with archivists, you know, um, I discovered the Carcanet Press email preservation project. Carcanet Press is a poetry publisher based in Manchester, quite a large poetry publisher. And this, uh, this preservation project is really about preserving email archives. And it started in 2012 uh, until 2012. 2014, and it uh, resulted in the rescue and preservation of a lot of Emails, a total of two hundred and fifteen thousand emails and sixty five thousand attachments. So I was really fascinated by this project, and at that time I started uh, working very closely with archivists. Um, so I'm a literary scholar by training, but of course you know I've been doing quite a lot of archival work uh, in paper archives for many many years, uh, including at Columbia University, by the way. Um, and and yes, yeah, so I started wor- working. Working very closely with, uh, with archivists, you know, uh, paying attention to those new materials, like email archives, you know, a uh, digital archives. And that was really the start of my uh, After the Digital Re- Revolution project, which started in 2017. So I've been working with, uh, with archivists for many years now. And um, I'm also working with computer scientists at the moment on two new projects. So I think, going back to your question, question, question about collaboration, you know, this is extremely important for humanities scholars like myself to build those collaborations and really to be able to work with a lot of different people, you know, from different backgrounds in order to be able to sort sort out these big issues. I mentioned the issue of uh, email archives, and I'm sure we are are going to talk about this during this interview. So when you
1: mentioned the Carcanet project, uh, you said that part of the mission is about Rescuing the emails. And I think that that vo- vocabulary seems central to digital projects right now. Underlying that vocabulary is the fear that digital documents are in danger of being lost, and that literary scholars who rely on the traces left by writers, including drafts and correspondence, are bound to be disappointed in the future. And humans in general aren't very good at thinking about future generations but one could argue that archivists are in the business of doing just that. So can you describe how digital documents might disappear?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So if we go back a little bit in time, we see that very few people cared about the preservation of uh, digital documents before the 1990s. I mean, paper remains uh, the most widespread medium of communication, um, and archivists were mostly concerned about preserving those paper records. And of course, once you've preserved the, the records, you also need to catalogue them and to make them more accessible. So the most uh, pressing concern was not digital documents, but the huge amount of paper records that were uncatalogued, um, difficult to find, difficult to access, really. Uh, That really changed from the 1990s, because the the archival community started seeing uh, digital documents as endangered records, you know, as records that could uh, disappear. In August 1993, there was actually an important legal decision in the United States uh, federal agencies, you know, like the White House, Congress, now now had to keep uh, all official email uh, documents. You know, everything that was issued by those uh, federal agencies had to be kept on uh, computer systems. So it was not enough to print those messages, you know, out to paper. The hard copies often lacked important information about the context, for example, the Sanders. The, the, the person to, to which uh, the email was sent, uh, and also the time of transmission. So electronic versions had to be retained to, to satisfy those record-keeping requirements. So that was really a turning point in the 1993. And for, for the archival communities, this was was a big, big challenge. At the turn of uh, the 21st century, around uh, 2000, it became clear that it was not enough to to keep, to preserve those endangered digital uh, records. It was also important to make them accessible to researchers. So the question of preservation started moving to the question of access. It's not enough to, uh, to preserve those documents. Uh, it's also important for researchers to access those documents. And of course, it's a, it's a huge task, uh, which is why, uh, you know, we talked about collaborations earlier on. It's important to create those collaborations across various institutions, across various, you know, people with various backgrounds, not only at the national level, you know, but also at the international level. And I'm sure you're, you're familiar with the uh, digital preservation Coalition, the DPC, uh, which was actually created in 2002, and um, initially it was a partnership between several agencies in the UK and Ireland, and since uh, its creation in 2002, it has become uh, an international organisation, you know, with members uh, in the States, in Australia, in continental Europe, uh, elsewhere, and it's really an organisation for for digital archivists and for, for the people who are interested in digital preservation so nearly 20 years later after the creation of the digital preservation coalition the issue is not so much about preservation uh, it's uh, you know it's very much about access to- And one important thing as well is that many documents do not end up in the archive. So at the time when everyone was sending letters, uh, it was common practice to preserve the letters that you received. And we think we are doing the same with emails when we keep everything in our email boxes. The thing is we often rely on uh, private companies, you know, uh, and those private companies may Disappear at any time, so for example, Alta Vista a couple of years ago had a free email service, but it shut down in March two thousand and two and At that time, you know when Alta Vista shut down, they had uh, two hundred thousand active email accounts on the platform and of course people lost a lot of data here and the same happened with MySpace when it shut down and there are so many so many other examples. So last year Richard Ovenden, director of the and Library, published an important book called Burning the Books, a history of knowledge under attack and he wrote and I have the quote in front of me here, um, as more and more of the world's memories placed online we are effectively outsourcing that memory to the major technology companies that now control the internet. So it's basically Richard Ovenden is saying that the problem is that these companies do not really care about preservation. This is not, you know, the core of the business. So, so digital documents that are preserved on those digital platforms are at risk of disappearing. And I think this is a major, major issue. So, just just to summarize what I'm trying to say here is that um, you can leave old letters unattended for for many, many years, and there is a good chance that those old letters will still exist for for the next generations. But the true is not uh, the, the same is not true of uh, of digital correspondence. And of course, files that are uh, saved on your computer can disappear if you lose the computer if you know you have a major crash on your system. And of course, external storage can also become obsolete over time. So I think we have a range of issues here, but preservation and access, those are you know, two main issues. So
1: what you're describing, Lise, are two layers of loss. One at the level of the file, losing it, it being corrupted, and then also at the level of the institution or the company. So the technology around writing paper letters didn't change. But we already have obsolete digital ways of communicating that are no longer supported. However, it's not actually loss that's usually focused on in acquisition decisions. It's the surplus of files and how to deal with so many proliferating copies. There's a clear understanding that email will be interesting for literary scholars and for researchers. And scholarship that investigates the sociology of literature or the historical production of literary institutions would seem to find documents fascinating that archives are often tempted not to preserve, but are beginning to do so. Uh, So shipping notices to different bookstores or the methods for distribution or advertising agreements. When you're talking to archivists and Facilitating conversations between archivists and literary scholars. What are the kinds of digital born documents that you advocate institutions should preserve?
2: Yeah, no, thank you so much for the, for this question, because I think we have this, um, you know, this concession of literary scholars only interested in the text, you know, or in drafts of uh, of literary text, and I think it's more complicated than that. I mean, obviously, you know, people like myself are interested in the literary text, but we are also interested in the paratext. We are interested in everything around the text. Uh, so it could be, for example, the biography of the author, the... Um, There are personal relationships, there are professional relationships, you know, everything that could be relevant to interpret the text. So so scholars are interested not only in drafts, but also in publishing materials, in letters, and also, of course, in emails now. And as you know, I mean, in the, the mid-20th century, libraries in the U.S. started buying manuscripts and correspondence from vi- writers. And many, many uh, writers in the U.S. and elsewhere, for many of those writers, it was a, an interesting opportunity, you know, not only to make money, but perhaps to reach a, a broader audience. And you had this um, emergence of a new marketplace, you know, for, for manuscripts, for for drafts, etc. So many writers started presenting their letters, their drafts, uh, in the hope that one day, you know, they will will be able to sell those materials to libraries. And just to give you uh, one example, I mean, uh, I've been working a lot on the British writer Angus Wilson, who lived uh, most of his life in in Suffolk in the UK. And he sold his manuscript to the University of Iowa in the 1960s. And at that time, it was quite an unusual thing to do, you know, for, for a British writer. But I think today, there is a growing awareness among writers that digital documents are also valuable. So not only paper documents, you know, everyone knows that those documents are valuable, that they can be sold uh, to libraries, but also the digital documents. I mean, many writers preserve their digital drafts in Word document, you know, as a Word format or as a PDF format, but I don't think that many people know that their emails are also valuable so these emails often languish you know in a, an email box which is as we've just discussed at risk of disappearing you know if the commercial company just shuts down so the problem is that there is not a real market for emails I and mean, most of the collections that libraries acquire today are actually hybrid collections um, so you have paper records you also have have digital materials you know, as part of these collections. And there is no specific price placed on um, digital materials. So basically, for writers, this does not really provide an incentive uh, to preserve their emails. I mean, why would they uh, preserve their emails if you know, our libraries do not really put a price on the emails? I was, I was talking about, you know, publishing materials that are also of interest to literary scholars, to people like myself. And as you know, I mean, not many uh, publishers preserve their correspondence with writers. I know that uh, Columbia has a, a wonderful uh, collection of publishers' archives, but many publishers actually do not really care about their archives. I mean, in the publishing industry, the, the general rule is to, to move fast, and there is little time to, to reflect on the past and, you know, to think about the archive. So the danger today is really that emails and other data preserved on online platforms uh, will simply disappear and be uh, inaccessible to future researchers. You brought up the question, too, of price for
1: digital files. And I've heard that some institutions are thinking that uh, they won't have to pay anything for digital files, that, that one shouldn't have to pay for non-unique copies i've also heard from major dealers in new york city that they simply just don't want to deal with the new digital frontier so i also wonder if uh, some of the important intermediaries are not equipped to deal with to inventory and to try to sell and shop around
2: digital materials yes that might be the case um there was Actually, an interesting book by Amy Chen published very recently on this literary marketplace, you know, for a paper records that started appearing in the mid 20th century. And I think with the digital landscape, everything is changing very fast. It's also the case at the moment that, you know, I mean, the kind of collections that, that are acquired uh, at the moment are mostly from older writers, obviously. So of course, those are, are mostly hybrid collections, paper plus digital, and it will probably change with the newer generation, you know, people who actually have done all of their careers, they've written on a laptop, on a desktop, and they've always, you know, uh, exchange emails instead of letters. So this will probably change actually with the new generation.
1: I think that's right. It'll force a reckoning. The major collections that Columbia has purchased have been hybrid, and there has been a focus on the paper part of the archive. I, I wanted to also draw out something that uh, you mentioned, which is that. Part of the reason that art, that artists sell their archives is to make money, but another is to reach more researchers or to reach almost a second audience. And that's a step towards posterity. You also talked about international collaborations working together to create best practices. So I wondered, are there best practices around virtual reading rooms? It seems like when authors or artists sell their papers, and hope that they're digitized. In fact, one of those goals is to reach a wider audience. And yet many digital archives are only available physically on site at the library. So there seems to be a tension there between the major benefits of digitization, which is making things more widely available. What's the argument with that? Why keep digital items linked to a physical location when they don't technologically need to be?
2: Well, at the moment, as you know, it's often um, necessary to travel to archival collections to to look at born digital records, and of course, those born digital records can be easily made accessible online, and uh, most libraries do not do that at the moment. But, so let's take a particular example. I mean, the, the example of the archive of the British writer Ian McEwan. So it's actually at the Harry Ransom Center in uh, in Austin, in Texas, and. It's an interesting story, actually. So, so when uh, Ian McEwen sold his archive to the Harry Ransom Center a couple of years ago, he included seventeen years of emails, so from 1997 to 2014. And when you look at the finding aid, you know, for this collection, for the Ian McEwen collection, uh, well, it tells us that the email correspondence has not been processed and is not available to researchers at this time, and. I I actually checked this morning, and it's still you can still see this message. Um, so I guess I was very lucky because I was able to access the email archive when I went to uh, to Austin in 2017. I mean, the reading room staff was very helpful. They uh, prepared a selection of emails based on the keywords that I had given them. So they brought the laptop you know in the reading room, and I was able to read uh, Ian McEwen's emails, which was you know wonderful experience, really. But it was not always easy to understand the context. I mean, sometimes I was not sure if the emails I was reading on the screen were originally in the inbox or perhaps in another folder, you know, in the sand folder. So a typical experience for me was to see uh, Ian McEwan's response to a query. And then I clicked, you know, through dozens of other emails. And then I found the original question. So that was not really uh, user-friendly, but... Uh, at the end of the day I was able to find uh, relevant data for my research just to give you an idea of the, the kind of data that I found in this email archive in the early 1970s uh, Ian McEwen was still a very young man you know looking for mentors uh, you know influential literary figures who could help him uh, establish himself and many people actually helped him you know like for example uh, not only British people but uh, also other US people. So, for example, the editor of the New American Review, uh, who was called Ted Solotaroff, he published several of Ian McEwan's short stories between 1972 and 1975. And three decades later, Solotaroff wrote uh, an email to Ian McEwan to congratulate him on his recent novels. He said, Okay, so that's really, you know, wonderful career. You, You know, your career was a great success. Etc., etc. And McCuen was very happy, of course, and he replied, and I have the email in front of he, uh, me actually. He said, I glowed in the face of your praise, and the experience rather took me back to the early 1970s when a letter ah, oh, those were the days from you appear to me in my little flat in Norwich to have been sent from an Olympian realm. So basically he was saying, okay, you know, you remember when we were both, you know, younger in the 1970s, we used to exchange those uh, letters. Now, of course, it's emails, right? So that's uh, so that was quite a, you know, a reflection on the mediums that they used to, uh, to to correspond and to create those relationships, which are, of course, extremely important. And for writers and you know to really get uh, get established, so I actually use this quotation in my monograph on uh, history of creative writing programs, and the monograph is going to be published very soon with Oxford University Press. So I actually uh, use this data, you know, for my research, and it's really a pity that other researchers cannot access, you know, those uh, important materials at the moment at the Harry Ransom Center, and I'm sure it will uh, change in the future. So, so one way of changing. You know, this and making this archive more accessible. Perhaps would be to imagine a system where people don't need to physically travel to archival collections uh, to consult, you know, these born digital records. So we could imagine a system where researchers would provide an ID document, like a passport, perhaps a letter of recommendation, and then they would be allowed to log in and access the born digital records. And I would say, so you mentioned virtual uh, reading rooms that would be a system that could be designed to make those archives more more accessible and i would really say that archives are not meant to be locked you know they are meant to, to be used by not only by researchers but also by a wide range of users including people who cannot physically travel to repositories and of course you know in the with the with the covid situation physically travelling that has become of course extremely difficult or even impossible so many institutions have been closed. So I think it's really time to think of trying to make those archives more accessible. Perhaps you know using a system like a virtual room. Uh, but there are so many issues with uh, not only with uh, with copyright, but also with data protection, technical issues. Uh, uh, so many issues to uh, to sort out. I guess
1: the ransom center is an interesting example. It's so far from Miquel's home. And I love that quotation that you read, the letter that reaches him from an Olympian realm and is sent to Norwich, and you had to travel from London to Austin to see the email. And travel is so difficult for people who can't do it for a number of reasons, for cost, physical ability, care commitments at home, not to mention what you do when you actually get to the archive. I'm located in Manhattan, and the cost of... um, of staying while you use the archive is also prohibitive. So I want to turn to copyright. On the podcast, we've spoken also to Peter Hurdle, who is a digital copyright specialist and archivist, and we talked about the obstacles put up to users to access materials, sometimes even for items that are in the public domain. But copyright and data protection laws are different in the UK, in the US, Can you describe for an American audience what the UK's general data protection regulation is and how that approach to privacy affects archives?
2: Yes, absolutely. So, General Data Protection Regulation, uh, which is the GDPR, is a regulation that uh, applies only to uh, Europe, uh, European uh, territory, uh, and it's on data protection and privacy. So, as I said, it applies only to the EU. So, of course, as you know, uh, Britain is no longer part of the EU. Uh, but the good news is that in 2018, uh, Britain adopted its own version of the GDPR. It's called the Data Protection Protection Act. So now that uh, Britain has left the EU, well, the Data Protection Act creates a continuity between the UK and the rest of the European Union. So what is uh, the GDPR about? Well, Article 15 is really important. I mean, it gives people the right to access their personal data and information, and also it gives them um, some, some control over uh, about how this personal data is being processed. But it's really about access to personal data. So both the GDPR and the Data Protection Act in Britain puts a lot of emphasis on the documentation that needs to be kept and also on the right of individuals to to access their data, to rectify their data and also to erase their data. So as you can imagine, for um, archival institutions, this creates um, some issues because, okay. On the one side, they need to respect uh, this uh, need of individuals to uh, to be able to access, uh, rectify and erase their data. But on the other side, they also have uh, what we call the archiving in the public interest principle, So basically, it's recognised that archival collections uh, need, of course, to to do uh, their job, which is to archive in the public interest. This means that, for example, if an individual wants to delete all their data in a specific archive, well, the library can refuse because the archive presents uh, a public interest. So in practice, I mean, many archival institutions in the UK are quite risk adverse. They prefer to close down entire collections rather than give access to records that could be potentially problematic and I should say because I've worked uh, both, both in um, UK collections and also in uh, US collections in the US it's generally much easier to get access to archives so what happens is that American archivists will uh, often bring you a bunch of documents and if you find anything sensitive of course you know, you're know you expected to ask for permissions before for publishing this information or even not, uh, of course, uh, avoiding publication, of course. So I should say that sometimes it's still not easy to get access to certain archives in the US. I, I mean, I mentioned the uh, Ian McCurran archive. Um, the email archive is close to researchers and it's uh, in Austin, in Texas. Um, so even when an institution wants to share those digital files, uh, it cannot put everything online. So, so I would say that few institutions have salt all the issues related to digital archives, including technical issues, uh, also how to design an interface which would make it easy for researchers to consult those documents. Even researchers who are not very uh, tech savvy, who are not very uh, familiar with uh, complex technical interfaces. I think it's important, again, to think about access and access to a wide range of users. So not only researchers, but also people for example people who are doing research on their family who are perhaps you know who don't have this kind of professional training that academic researchers have
1: absolutely i, I want to turn back to the the tech savvy qualifications in a minute but earlier you mentioned the carcanet publisher in manchester and as i understand it from reading your work this is both a case of technical triumph and frustration because it remains closed to users. Can you talk about what you know about the archive and how it's being preserved for future use and why researchers can't use it now? Is that related to the GDPR?
2: Yeah, so I should say uh, first, your pronunciation of carcanet is perfect. It's uh, a so it means uh, a necklace, uh, usually of uh, gold or set with jewels. And perhaps to, to give a little bit of context to, uh, to people who will listen to this podcast, uh, I mean the, the word carcanet was chosen in 1962 when you had this uh, group of students who set up a magazine between Oxford and Cambridge, and Michael Schmidt, who was a, a young student at. Oxford, uh, took over the magazine in 1967. So he was still uh, an Oxford student uh, and then he decided to create his own company, so in 1969, uh, so based, based on this literary magazine uh, and it became uh, quite quite a uh, you know, major publishing company and it has been publishing poetry for, for the past 50 years. So what's happening with the Carcanet Archive, it was acquired uh, by the John Wyland's Library in the late 1970s, and they still receive some documents on an ongoing basis. I mean, every year, you know, they receive new materials, and of course, many of these new materials are digital now. So, it's, I mean, a fascinating archive, quite a large archive, but it's also a bit frustrating because it's difficult to access those materials, especially the, the newer uh, materials. And that, there are many issues. I mean, we mentioned a couple. Right issues, we mentioned the GDPR, uh, technical issues are, you know, not a problem, of course. So I would say that, you know, the, the John violence Library is not unique here. I mean, uh, lots of UK libraries have exactly the same problem with access. And of course, you know, in the US, that's, uh, that's the same thing as well, even though. Uh, You don't have the GDPR there. But, I mean, if we take the example of the, the British Library, which is, of course, you know, a major institution, I mean, it's still not easy for, for users to access born digital collections at the British Library. And I mean, the main problem is that born digital records are not always listed on the catalogue and finding aids. So, So people don't know about those collections. Let me take an example. I mean, that's the example of the Will Self Archive. Will Self is a contemporary writer. He's based in London and the British Library bought his collection a couple of years ago. So if you look at the finding aid for the Will Self collection, you will see it's called Will Self Personal and literary papers. So basically, when you download the finding aid, well, there are absolutely no mention of born digital records. I mean, you wouldn't know that the British Library has any born digital uh, records. It's really presented as a paper collection, as a traditional uh, paper collection. But in fact, I did some, um, you know, digging around and I discovered that when the British Library uh, bought the collection a couple of years ago, they presented it as a hybrid collection. So it contains both paper records and born digital records. And in particular, the collection includes uh, the hard drive of Will self, uh, the computer hard drives. Uh, uh, so they have uh, manuscript drafts. They have approximately 100,000 emails, also quite a large number of emails. They also have a lot of files that have not been entirely identified or mined. So for example, they have downloads of his itunes so quite a lot of interesting materials here for for researchers So again, the problem is that users of this archive do not even know that the British Library has those materials. So so my uh, suggestion as a literary scholar would be to to be more transparent and perhaps to include more details about those born digital collections. Even though, you know, the issue of access might still be, you know, a big problem in the, in the next few years. I think it's still important to catalogue those collections and at least to tell uh, users that, okay, the library has those materials, and perhaps they are not available, you know, for, for such reason, but you know they will be available in the future. So I think trying to inform users that these materials exist uh, is really important, and also it will make the library more accountable, uh, because of course you know archives cannot be closed forever. I mean, the library would need to give an approximate date when the materials would be available. So, for example, it could be like in 10 years, in 20 years, that at least having some date would be useful, I think.
1: Absolutely. I want to put a pin in that and come back to the timeline of making materials accessible. But, wow, not even knowing that the digital part of Will Self's archive exists... Uh, that's incredible. We call those hidden collections at Columbia, and there's been a move to simply make them all visible. Doesn't mean they're all accessible, but they they show up now in the Archives Portal. Um, you you highlight also some I think exciting opportunities with digital archives. The iTunes library—that's really interesting. I would love to know you know the Spotify lists that artists or authors listen to. So there are these new data forms that researchers have to slash have the opportunity of dealing with. And I love the example you give of the Enron email archive, which I will describe at at a little bit of length because I think it's so interesting. So if you want to keyword search those emails for incriminating evidence, say about expunging records, looking for the words delete or erase wouldn't work, right, because they had used an internal language to describe and disguise their actions. And as you recount, in the Enron emails, the code words were using Star Wars references like Millennium Falcon to describe getting rid of emails. So in that case, you would have to either read the emails in an analog fashion all the way through and notice the strangeness of the language and decode it. Or you would have to use some other tool altogether. And you describe how data visualization was used to see these strange words pop out. And this clearly requires some special data skills. But I guess my question is, do you think that this is true more generally of digital archives? Do you think using a digital-born archive demands new or different research skills than visiting a special collection in person and looking through the records that are kept in an institutional archive traditionally.
2: Well, data visualization is certainly a great way to find relationships that are not obvious at first sight. Uh, I mean, especially with a uh, huge uh, archive, like you mentioned, the Enron archive. Uh, another example would be the, the Carcanet Press archive we, we discussed, you know, at the John Violence Library in Manchester. So when you have an archive, which is normally close to researchers, you know, being able to create those data visualization can be extremely useful to make sense uh, of archive and this huge amount of data. Just to um, tell you a little bit about the kind of research that I've been doing, you know, in the Caracanet press archive. I mean, with my uh, HRC grant, I was able to employ an archivist who was actually based at the John Weiland's library. And what she did, she prepared a selection of 200 emails that were created by Caracanet during a single year, so 2010. So, of course, you know, 200 emails, that's not the same thing as the Enron collection, which is absolutely huge. But that still gives us, you know, quite a, um, a good overview of the kind of activities that Charkana did in 2010, which was really a key year. Because what happened, of course, um, after the economic crisis of two thousand and eight, you had funding cuts in the UK, and many cultural organisations, including the Arts Council England, really struggled and had to, uh, you know, to, to give fewer, less money to Carcanet Press and other poetry publishers that were uh, severely impacted. So basically, Carcanet Press, there were quite a lot of uncertainties in this context, but also there were quite a lot of uncertainties for other publishers, you know, like Bloodaxe, like uh, People Tea Press, so other poetry publishers in the UK where quite, uh, you know, wondering what would happen in this difficult context. So what I, I I did, really, I looked at this selection of emails and I found that there were a uh, frequent correspondence between Michael Schmidt, you know, the founder and managing director of CarKanet, and those independent presses. So I mentioned Bloodaxe, you know, uh, Tree Press is another one. So what I did, I used Gephi to create those network visualizations and So I had nodes and I I had what I did for each node, uh, the color represents gender, and then the size is proportionate to email exchanges. So it's difficult to to explain uh, without showing what the visualization uh, looks like, but really what you can imagine is that Michael Schmidt is at the center of this visualization, and he's exchanging emails with uh, uh, a lot of older uh, male publishers, uh, like, for example, Jeremy Pointing, who was born in 1946 who's a founder of People Tree Press, also with Neil Astley, who was born in 1953, who founded Bloodaxe in 1982. So he's very much, you know, in, in touch with this network of all the male publishers. So what I really show, you know, in my research is that leadership and management responsibilities are often in the hand of those male publishers, while women often occupy, you know, less prominent roles in the publishing industry. But I think it would be a bit simplistic to present women as marginalized and men as uh, literary insiders. I mean, it's a little bit more complicated than that. Because as I mentioned, Carcanet is based in Manchester, Bloodaxe, Books and uh, People Tree Press are based in Newcastle and Leeds, uh, respectively. So basically, they are far from London, far from traditional literary centres. And what's important here is that the founders, uh, the founders of this press, often have this discourse, you know, insisting on the on their marginalized geographical location, you know, saying, okay, we are based in Manchester, we are based in Newcastle or Leeds. That's not the same thing as London. And they present themselves as totally independent from uh, those powerful figures in London. So so what I did, you know, I tried to question this discourse of marginalisation and I analysed tweets uh, that have the hashtag Carcanet50. So Carcanet50 was a hashtag used to celebrate the 50th anniversary of Carcanet in 2019. And what I showed, you know, looking at those tweets, is that you have close links between between London-based literary figures and those literary figures based in Manchester, in Leeds, in Newcastle, etc. And I used Twitter profiles and other publicly available data. And I also added a location associated with each account that uses hashtag, you know, carcanet50. So what I did really, I used Gephi to identify p- p- those geographical clusters. And I also used this Calcanet 50 data set to show that you don't really have a separate Manchester literary seed. It's rather, you know, an interconnection between London and Manchester. So I think it was really interesting to compare, you know, my selection of emails from 2010. So as I said, it was only uh, 200 emails and also the Calcanet 50 data data set from 2019, because it shows um, you know, the potential for linked open data for research. And I think that archival emails could be enriched with those various sources, you know, including Twitter accounts. Really, I mean, data visualization, You know, I mentioned Gephi, that's one approach, one methodology. I mean, the main issue is that we can't really review huge amounts of data. I mean, I mentioned the Carcannet Press archive. You mentioned earlier on the uh, Enron email archive. Uh, one of the examples that we could give is uh, the Wikileaks document. I mean, the Wikileaks document obviously uh, contain a huge amount of data and the files are mostly unstructured. There is no clear index. It's very difficult to, to make sense of this data. So of course, uh, in this context, data visualization can be used to identify patterns. You know, trying to uh, to make a sense of this huge amount of data. Yeah. So identifying patterns that's one one thing. Uh, data visualization can also be used to tell stories based on data. I mean, obviously, you know, visualizations are of interest to researchers. You know, to, to people like myself. Um, they are also of interest to uh, to private companies and even to, to policy makers. I mean, I know that Harvard, for example, has a project called um, the Atlas of Economic Complexity. And it's an open access tool, extremely useful tool that offers visualization uh, to understand growth opportunities in specific countries. Like, for example, you type France and you have, you know, some data, the data visualization on the growth opportunities for for France, for, you know, this particular country. So again, I think it's it's a good example of an open access tool, which is quite quite easy to use, you know, easy to uh, manipulate. And I think visualizations can be applied to a wide range of sectors. They can also be used to create links between several disciplines. And it's the same with artificial intelligence and machine learning, you know, another advanced technique that we could use, you know, to to make sense of this huge amount of data. And I mean, like uh, data visualizations, artificial intelligence can be used to create those links. Between various disciplines. So, so just to, to sum up and to, to conclude on this, I mean, I was trained as a literary scholar, but increasingly I work with computer scientists, you know, people who are real specialists of artificial intelligence and machine learning. I have two projects at the moment, funded by the Arts and Humanities Research Council. So, so one project is called Aura. So it means archives in the UK, island, and AI, artificial intelligence. And the other one is actually with US partners, and it's funded by the HRC on the UK side and by the National Endowment for the Humanities on the US side. And it's called AI for Cultural Organizations. So we are going to look at artificial intelligence applied to those huge amounts of data. And the project is has just started, actually, just last month. And we are going to organize a series of workshops, a series of case studies. Uh, it's a very, very exciting uh, project, I think. And, you know, there are so many, so many uh, methodologies that we could explore uh, to make sense of this huge amount of data. So that's a very exciting moment, I think.
1: We were talking about how archives remain closed to researchers for privacy and copyright and logistical reasons. Since data visualizations can be used to quote-unquote read materials by feeding them through an algorithm, could they be applied to closed collections? That is, could you imagine a research pathway being developed with archival institutions in which distant reading practices are applied to collections that are closed, say for 25 years or 50 years or the duration of a researcher's lifetime?
2: I think it's uh, it's a bit complicated because, of course, you know, I mean, with my selection of 200 uh, emails, of course, I was able to read those emails to do close reading and also to do this form of distant reading, you know, with data visualization. So I was able to combine close and distant reading, you know, to use uh, the well-known phrase of Franco Moretti. But in the case of archives that are totally close researchers, access to data remains an issue because, of course, you cannot do data visualization if you don't have access to any kind of data. So I think at the moment, you know, a lot of archival collections are a bit risk adverse and they prefer to close entire collections, even if sometimes they could give access to metadata, for example. And sometimes the metadata I mean, it may contain sensitive information, but lots of the time, you know, the metadata is not sensitive. So giving access to some forms of data, even if it's not, you know, the entire text, would still be useful for researchers. So Lise,
1: not to put you on the spot, but as somebody who thinks a lot about accessibility and also uses archives yourself, do you think that an open date should be part of purchase plans? That is... There are a lot of wealthy institutions that tend to edge out smaller institutions in purchasing important collections, but making accessibility a necessary part of purchasing collections that have importance to the broader public might be a way of evening the playing field. Do you think that having an open date should be part of purchase plans?
2: Yes, I think that's important to give an approximate date when uh, libraries and archival collections buy, acquire archives. Because at the end of the day, I mean, those collections are, have to be opened at some point. There's no point, you know, buying a collection and keeping it locked, you know, for, uh, for, for ages and nobody knows when it's going to open. So at least, you know, having, I understand that, you know, sometimes there are sensitivity issues, it can be extremely complicated with donors, etc. But at least having a specific date when the collection will be accessible would be, uh, you know, of great help for researchers and other users as well.
1: And would fulfill the public commitment to stewarding these archives for the public and for the future. Absolutely, absolutely. So Lise, this has been a fascinating conversation for me And I want to ask you one question to close, which is, what do you foresee will be some of the most important digital archives that will be preserved in the coming decades? And perhaps, what do you see as some of the most troublesome digital archives being captured?
2: So... I talked a lot about email archives in this interview because they are tricky for, for many reasons, including at the preservation level. I mean, it's easy to turn an email into a PDF format, but it's much more complicated to preserve a thread of emails, you know, with all the metadata associated with emails. So when we consider the huge amounts of emails that people send, I mean, the issue of preservation become particularly complicated. But of course, you know, this issue of preservation observation is complicated, but it's less complicated than the issue of access, because as we've seen, you know, there are so many issues with uh, data protection, copyright, technical issues that explain why these uh, email collections are not accessible most of the time. So the, the big problem, of course, is that email contain invaluable uh, information. You know, emails are extremely precious, which is why they can be so controversial, I mean, uh, of course, we have email scandals that come uh, in the news on a regular basis. In the US, you had the scandal over Hillary Clinton's emails uh, in 2017. There are, of course, many other examples of email scandals, you know, in the past few years. So. I think that we have methods today, you know, to identify uh, sensitive documents, you know, problematic documents in email archives. I mean, it's called sensitivity review and artificial intelligence can be uh, used to identify sensitive information. And also, of course, you know, once you've identified sensitive information, you can uh, put them aside and improving access to information which is not sensitive, which is not confidential. So even, I mean, you asked a question about troublesome archives or, you know, archives that are a bit problematic. Well, even the most problematic archives could be made accessible using uh, innovative methodologies, uh, such as artificial intelligence. And there are, of course, you know, uh, many other uh, techniques and approaches that could be used. So, as I said, you know, it's a, an exciting time for literary scholars to do research and also to create those collaborations with, uh, with archivists, with computer scientists, with other people from various backgrounds.
1: Thank you so much, Lise. This was a real pleasure. Thank you for the interview. Thank you so
2: much.
0: Thank you for listening to Overdue Conversations. This podcast is published in partnership with Columbia University Libraries. It is researched and produced by Lena Moe and Ty Jones. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to like and subscribe to Overdue Conversations wherever you listen to podcasts.